Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which is on page 827 in your church Bibles. And if you don't have a church Bible and you'd like one, just stick your hand up and the ushers are bringing them around now. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Josh, the clicker's not working, so I might just sort of give you a nod every so often, keep you awake through the sermon, just to advance things if needed. (laughs) A couple of times over the last couple of years, um, when I jump into my car, I find the glove box open and and the stuff sort of spread out around the car all over the place, and and my mind jumps to where every parent's mind goes and I think where have I gone wrong in my parenting that the kids don't just trash the house now they've taken to trashing the car as well but then both times when it's happened as I've sort of driven off and thought about it I've thought no no that's not what's happened it's not the kids who've done it somebody's walked down the driveway they've tried the car door found it unlocked and then they've rummaged through my glove box looking for something to steal, and in my case, giving up because all they've found is dirty tissues and dried up apple cores. (laughs) They haven't stolen anything, but they've taken away that that priceless sense of of safety and security and, and innocence that you kind of find yourself getting when things like that don't happen. And I can't help but wonder how many nights do they walk down that driveway and and try the door and find it locked most of the time before they actually managed to find it open. How often are they out there just, just waiting? You know, I've thought about leaving them a little note, like, give it up. The best you're going to get is a Mentos if you're lucky. I've got a friend who's, who's got a rusted out bomb of a car and he's taken to leaving his car open because when he has locked it or he's lent it to someone and then they've locked it, a couple of times he's had his window smashed so that they can go through his glove box and unfortunately, his car is about the same value as what it costs to replace a window. So he just leaves it unlocked so that he doesn't have to pay it. It's pretty messed up, isn't it, that we have to have locks in the first place in this world. And then even when we do have locks, they sometimes are, make the problem worse rather than solve it. See, I love the idea of a community where you can just leave everything open. 
or you don't need to even worry about locking your doors. And I, I hate the idea that one night I might come downstairs and find someone in the house rummaging around through stuff. It makes me sad, makes me a little bit afraid about you know, what could happen and it makes me angry. And it makes me think, what's going on? That this person, whoever they are, that they think it's okay to, to walk down my driveway and rummage through my glove box. I mean, I'm, I'm actually genuinely fascinated about who this person is since it's happened a couple of times. How do they justify it to themselves? Why do they think that it's a good idea? I mean, is it the kind of storyline that they always imagined that their life would take when they were in primary school? Is this the way that they thought things would pan out for them? Now, don't get me wrong. I've come to accept that I'm not superior to whoever this person is who's rummaging through my glove box. I can't imagine ever opening up someone's car and and going through their glove box like that, firstly because I just don't have the guts to do it. I get terrified if I'm accidentally trying to get into a car that looks like mine and if I realise it's not mine. But the reason that I've come to accept that I'm not superior is because I do have the guts to sit at home and steal in a way that's not so terrifying. You know, I could imagine watching a pirated movie or listening to a pirated album. I could imagine cutting corners on tax. I could imagine undervaluing a car I've just bought at the motor registry and then a couple of hours later overvaluing it on the phone to the insurance company. It's a bit rich if I'm going to judge the person going through my glove box when I'm quite capable of ripping people off myself in my own way. And it makes me think, what's going on with me? That, first of all, I could think that it's okay to rip people off like that. There was a time when I wouldn't have even have recognised that as stealing. And secondly, it makes me think, how did I get onto this storyline? That I could justify the tendency that I have within myself to rip people off while looking down on the glove box thief outside. Don't you reckon that it's just so easy to see other people out there as bad people while seeing ourselves as good people? Most people that I meet consider themselves a good person. In fact, I was chatting to a shop owner just the other day, about a week ago, who said that he considers himself a very good person, better than the average kind of bloke, uh, who'll go out of his way, actually, to help people. But he was telling me that something happened that shook that belief. He was in the city and a homeless guy had asked him for money. But instead of giving giving him money, which is not what he does, he he said that he'd buy him some food. So he, he went off to buy him a hamburger and as he went, the homeless guy said to him, just don't get mayo on it. So he goes to the cafe, he thinks, all right, all right, I won't get mayo. He asks for a hamburger without mayo And he takes it back, but as it turns out, they did put mayo on it, and as the homeless guy takes a bite out of it, he says, it's got mayo on it. So my shopkeeper friend's a good bloke, and he says, all right, right, I'll take it back. And as he turns around to go, the homeless guy mutters something under his breath that he just can't quite hear, but he knows it's not flattering. And so he turns around, he says, you know, you're a pretty ungrateful kind of guy. And the homeless guy starts swearing at him, telling him to... You can imagine. 
And so my shopkeeper friend, a very good bloke, throws the hamburger at him. And unfortunately for both of them, it hits the homeless guy square in the face. Now, I'm kind of listening to this story in shocked silence as he's telling me all this. And he says to me, I set out to do a good thing and I ended up doing a really terrible thing. And he had. He'd pretty much assaulted this guy. But isn't it so often the way that we set out with good intentions and we end up doing terrible things? We somehow end up on a different storyline. We set out to be a good husband or wife, but somehow we end up somewhere else. No one sets out to be stubborn and insensitive. No one sets out to make life painful for their spouse. It's not like people set out to have a bitter marriage or to be unforgiving. No one plans to have an affair, but it happens. We set out to be good parents, but somehow we can end up somewhere else. No one sets out to yell at their kids. No one sets out to find their kids an inconvenience. No one sits out to mess their kids up, but it can happen. Apparently, two out of three men look at pornography monthly. Two out of three monthly. Now, I don't think that too many men would want their own daughter or mother or sister to be caught up and exploited in that kind of world. But nonetheless, two out of every three men find themselves there monthly. It happens. Somehow, it just isn't true that that our lives belong to a storyline where we are thoroughly good people, while some other people out there are bad people. It's a kind of Disney oversimplification to think that there are two classes of people, the basically good and the basically bad. That storyline just doesn't work in this world. And it makes me think, what's going on? What's going on that we are like this, even if we don't see it in ourselves? Maybe it's time that we accept that there's a problem with the storyline that we are basically good. In the weeks gone by, we've seen God's overarching storyline for the world. We've seen that it's all about Jesus and that through Jesus, we're more loved by God than than we thought was possible. And because of Jesus, our storyline can be tied into God's own overarching storyline. But here at this point, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul, who writes this letter, he makes it absolutely clear that we don't naturally belong to God's overarching storyline. In fact, from God's point of view, our natural storyline is very different. In fact, it's completely opposed to God's storyline. Have a look with me again in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul writes... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is a very dark picture, don't you think? If it's true 
It explains what's going on when we find ourselves as apparently good people in dark places that we never thought we'd go. But it's such a dark picture that our natural reaction is, is just to reject it outright. I mean, look at how dark it is. We're dead in sin in verse 1. We're following the way of the devil in verse 2. We deserve God's anger in verse 3. For many people, that's, that's just too dark to accept. But notice that it, it's dark from God's point of view, but did you see what it looks like from our point of view in there? It looks very different. In verse 3, we're gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We're just following our desires and thoughts. God sees us as dead, as trapped by the devil, as disobedient, but we see ourselves as alive, free, doing whatever we want, living however we want. Many years ago, my sister started doing drugs and for a long time, she, she didn't see it as a problem. From her point of view, she was living it up. She was free and she was doing exactly what she wanted to be doing. And when we tried to convince her otherwise, she just couldn't see it. I even went along with her one time to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. It was extremely confronting. There were about 20 of, of us sitting around in this circle in this dingy little place. 20 scarred, broken people. And my sister hated it. And she said to me afterwards, that's not me. It was, their storyline was just too dark for her to be able to accept it. But you know what? They were actually more free than she was. Because they'd come to see that their true situation for what it was and they'd come to admit it. Whereas my sister was in a far worse way than they were because she couldn't see it. God is showing us here our true situation. Our storyline, it might feel like freedom from our point of view, doing whatever we want. But God tells us that without Him, we're not free, we're enslaved. We're not basically good, we're basically selfish. And we're not on our own team, instead we're against Him and we're on God's enemy's team. Now, it's no wonder at all, when you see things His way, that we're dead to Him. And the thing about dead people is that there's just nothing they can do to save themselves. We probably don't want to see it, but God says by nature, we face His anger. But here's the thing. God is not angry by nature. God Himself is not naturally angry. His anger is unnatural to Him. It's necessary because of who we are, but it's not at the very heart of who God is. We see what's natural to Him in verse 4. Josh, do you want to bring up our next verse for us? Thanks. This is what's natural. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. See, God, by nature, is rich in mercy. God, by nature, shows great love. And He shows His great love by loving even us, who naturally deserve His anger. Have a look at how God shows us His love in verse 4. Leave that one up there, thanks, Josh. But because of His great love for us, God, 
who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and sent us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now this is actually the main verse, the main sentence in this entire section. And all the other ideas are just hanging off this idea. They're just setting the scene for this idea that God takes the dead and he makes them live again. And have a look, see how he does this for us. In verse 5, with Christ. In verse 6, with Christ. And in verse 6 and 7, in Christ. There's no way to be made alive other than with Christ. Jesus died so that we wouldn't stay dead. And he lives so that we might live too. And if we know Jesus, God considers us like this now. We're alive now. We're even, in God's mind, as you can see there, seated with him in heaven now. It doesn't, I don't know if this is wrong of me to feel like this, but I just don't feel like I'm in heaven when I look around. I mean, do you? I think the heaters would work a little bit better in heaven. It's just a bit disappointing, isn't it? as great as it is to be here. The idea is that we're with God there, represented by Christ. We're there in Jesus. And the significance of this is that because of that, we can be absolutely sure that God's okay with us. Because if we're already alive, if we're already there in God's presence, seated next to him, then there's no longer any possibility of us ever facing God's anger. Is, is there? We're already there. We can't stuff it up because it's not about what we do but about what God has done for us. We are not the source of salvation. Salvation has no source other than God. Check this out. Paul drives this home. So have a look at verse 5 in this next slide. Grace, by the way, means a free, undeserved gift from God. So in verse 5, Paul says, By grace, by a free, undeserved gift from God, you have been saved. And then in verse 8, Paul says, Again, for by grace, you have been saved. And for some reason, Paul really doesn't trust us to get this right. So in verses 8 to 9, he says it in four different ways. Here's the first one. Have a look at this. Look at just how much he's really laboring this. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Here's the first one. And this is not from yourselves. The this here, it refers to salvation by faith. Salvation by faith is not your own doing. It's not from ourselves. We're not the source. We're not a partner. We're not even a contributor to our own salvation. And then the next one. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. You just receive the gift. And this is not like that kind of gift you get, you know, when you help someone move house and you move the entire lot and you can't walk for a week and then they give you a box of chocolates. It's, it's not that kind of gift. It's nothing like that. Paul makes this crystal clear because look at the next one in verse 9. Salvation's not by works. We don't work for it, we don't deserve it and therefore here's the last one he says in verse 9, 
so that no one can boast. The reputation that Christians sometimes have of being arrogant or self-righteous, if that's actually true, it would mean that we're not living true to the most basic foundation of what it means to be a Christian. The first thing that a Christian has got to see and know and continue in forever is that we are not good. An old minister of mine used to say that Christians are more like alcoholics than they are Rotary Club members. And we hear this is more like Alcoholics Anonymous than it is a Rotary Club meeting. I'm Stephen and by nature I'm a sinner deserving God's anger. We're like recovering sinners here. Christians, we just can't boast in our respectability and our goodness because we believe without Christ we're none of those things. We're nothing. We're saved by grace as a gift, not by works. So why is it that Paul is labouring this point here so hard? Why does he repeat it and, and say it in four different ways? It's because we forget it. It's because we corrupt it. Just look at church history. Just look at our world even today. Paul knows that we like to hear what we've got to do. You know, even in sermons, have you noticed that? We love application. We think, don't talk so much about it, just tell me what I've got to do. We want to know where the rubber hits the road and, and we, want to hear, we, want to, we, don't, we don't really want to hear the preacher say, be generous. We want to hear the preacher say things like, give 5.5 of your net income to mission, sponsor at least 2.5 compassion children, And when the Salvation Army knocks on your door, make sure you give at least $21.55. Our default reaction when God tells us that we're dead is to think, well, what do I do? Whereas Paul says to us here, that's not what we need to hear. First, we need to hear and know that when it comes to salvation, what we can do is nothing. Our storyline can only join God's storyline because of what He's done for us in Jesus, dying for us to join us into what He's doing. It's not until we've heard that, and it's not until we've been hit by it, it's not until we've freely received salvation that we're ready to hear about how we should live, how we should walk in that storyline, bringing our storyline under God's storyline. Paul labours this point because he is going to go on to speak about this. The second half of Ephesians is all about how we should walk in light of this. And even as we'll see in a moment, he's going to speak about it. But it's not until we've understood that we're fundamentally not good, but still God saves us. It's not till we understand that, that we can see that God saves us to do good. Did you see that in verse 10? Have a look at it again. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. Paul's hammered us to see that salvation is never ever in any way the result of the good things we do. But here he wants us to see that salvation is never ever disconnected from good works. You might remember that kind of expression which summarises much of the Reformation thought. Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. From this passage, there's three 
crucial things to see. That salvation comes first and is free. That salvation is for good works and that it's God that drives both salvation and our good works. Did you see that in verse 10? The good works are those which God prepared in advance. It's impossible to think that you can be a Christian and not be interested in doing good works. I mean, that's like saying that you can be a Christian and not be interested in God. God's saved us from walking in the storyline of the dead to instead walk according to this new storyline of the living. Sometimes, as Christians, we can think of this like a burden, but that's just to think about it completely wrong. This is still God's love. The best thing for us is to walk God's way. The richest, the most enjoyable, in the true sense, the most enjoyable life is walking His way, not that it's easy. It's a misunderstanding of God's love to think that because we're saved by grace, that therefore it doesn't really matter whether we bother with doing good things or not. You know, it's it's a completely messed up way of thinking. What kind of parent would bring a child into the world freely, but then not really care about whether they love what's good and right. Later on in the letter in chapter 5, which you can see in just a second on the screen, Paul says to us, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. As I said, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see exactly what that way of love looks like, what it looks like to live as God's children. But today I want to finish by talking about how this part of the Bible destroys two ideas about God. First, it destroys the idea that God is a harmless old man who would never get angry at anyone. You know that kind of idea? I think that's the predominant idea these days that's out there. We've seen clearly God is angry, angry at everyone, And rightly so, because we've embraced a storyline that is opposed to Him, whether we see it or not. But this passage also destroys the idea that God is an angry old man with a stick, just hoping that we'll step out of line so that He can give us a whack. Because as we've seen, God isn't rich in anger, demonstrating His great wrath, which He abundantly pours out on humanity. Yes, He's angry... But that's not his nature. His nature is love and mercy, which he shows in Christ powerfully and beautifully. His anger is his necessary but his unnatural work. Could it be that you've been seeing God all wrong? Have you ever admitted to him that what you've called freedom, he actually calls by a different name, rebellion? He's calling our storyline without him rebellion and he says it's going to end in his anger but God joins our storyline to his when he opens our eyes to see that we can escape that anger because of his love his mercy his grace alone have you joined has your storyline been joined into his it only happens when he pushes you to see that you desperately need Jesus And when he moves your heart to want Jesus. 
If it has been joined in, is that what your life storyline now shows? People who know that they've been saved by grace can't help but value grace. And if we value grace, is that evident in our lives? You know, if we're wronged, are we the kind of people who are quick to forgive? Are we willing to think the best of people or are we quick to see them get what they deserve? Are we quick to dismiss people in what we think and in what we say? You know, do we think things like people shouldn't get the dole, they should have to work for it like everyone else? Or refugees shouldn't get access to Australia, they should be sent home? Or juvenile delinquents shouldn't get lenient sentence, they should get what they deserve? If someone was to observe our lives, would they think that we worship a God who's excessive in grace or excessive in anger? Only excessive in anger. Remember, by nature, we all face God's anger. But by His rich mercy, His great love, His grace, we're saved through faith. And we're saved to be children who walk in, a, in following His example in the good that He's made us to do. Let's pray and ask for His help in that. Heavenly Father, when we see things the way You see things, we're astounded by two things. Astounded at just how awful and stark that picture is, that You see us even though we've think we're living in freedom and doing what we want you see us as actually being enslaved dead to you and facing your anger lord we're astounded that even still you would love us that even still you would love us to the extent of jesus dying for us to bring us into a new storyline Father, help us to realise that it's only by your grace that we can stand before you. But because of your grace, we stand before you even now in Jesus, completely accepted. Father, help us as your loved children to live your way, to rejoice in living your way, to love what's good because we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.